Thank you, Tricia, for reading for us. And uh, may I pray as we come to look at those words. Uh, Lord God, we praise you that you are a speaking God. Uh, You've made yourself known in the pages of your words and through the person of your Son. And we pray now in the next few minutes uh, that your word would be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your glory our supreme concern. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, it is the most evocative symbol, I think, in the world. It's found in churches. It's found on Bibles. It's found on jewellery. You'll even find it tattooed on people's backs. It is, at the same time, both a great religious emblem and a great humanitarian emblem. And yet, at the same time, it's the most brutal form of execution that human minds have ever managed to devise. And the reason it's become so famous is because of one man in particular uh, who dies upon it. I speak, of course, of the cross, the cross of Jesus Christ. But what is it about the cross of Jesus Christ that sets it apart from any other death that has happened in human history? What is it about the cross that makes it so celebrated, even today? How could one man's death, 2,000 years ago, an apparent failure in the eyes of the world, how could that possibly have any relevance to us today? Well, that passage that uh, we just heard read uh, uh, opens up the chapter in which uh, St. Mark will take us through the terrible last events of the life of the Lord Jesus. Uh, He will uh, take us through the events of that first Good Friday leading up to the cross. And yet it seems to me as I've been looking at this passage this week that even in these opening verses... Uh, Mark shows us, I think, three seemingly contradictory truths that if we can understand this morning, will lead us right to the heart of what the cross is about and what it means for us today. Let's have a look at that first uh, truth, shall we? Thank you, Thomas. This first truth, uh, Mark shows us Jesus in chains and yet in total control. Jesus is in chains, and yet in total control. I don't know if you were able to be with us last week, but if you were, you will know that we left our story with Jesus before the Jewish High Council. And as we pick up the threads again, uh, Mark tells us that the council called yet another meeting to decide what to do with Jesus, uh, verse 1. At this time, Palestine was under Roman rule, and so the Jewish leaders did not have the authority to carry out a death sentence. It's clear from what Mark says, that had been uh, their aim. They passed a death sentence on Jesus, but it was a death sentence they couldn't carry out. And so if they wanted to carry it out, they would need to enlist the cooperation of the Romans as well. We get a sense from these early verses of just the, the shameful nature of the legal process that Jesus faced. Notice that the charge that Jesus faced changed between his appearance before the Jewish high council and then Pilate, the Roman governor. So he appears uh, before the uh, the Jewish high council back in uh, verse 64 of um, chapter 14. And it was blasphemy 
The charge was blasphemy, a religious charge. And yet here, when he appears before Pilate, it changes. It's a political uh, charge. It was a complete uh, farce. Pilate accuses Jesus of political crimes. Uh, verse uh, 2, uh, we, uh, we read in chapter 15, he says, Are you the king of the Jews? In other words, he's accusing Jesus of calling himself king. He's accusing him of setting himself up as a ruler against the Roman emperor. That is by any set a pretty serious charge, isn't it, I think? I mean, it's a charge of, of, of high treason, if nothing else. And I think it's amazing that in the light of the seriousness of the charges, Jesus seemingly makes no attempt to defend himself. It may be a completely chumped-up charge, but frankly, you'd imagine even more you'd want to claim uh, your innocence, wouldn't you? And yet that's not what we see at all, is it, from these verses? Apart from a brief comment, Jesus simply remains silent in the face of his accusers. Uh, There are many forms of silence. There's a guilty silence. Well, we know that we've done wrong, we've been found out. We're guilty, and we're expecting uh, to bear the consequences for our actions. There's a fearful silence, where we are frankly terrified about the consequences. How do we explain Jesus' silence here? I don't think it was a guilty silence. I don't actually think it was a fearful silence either. That's not the impression we get here. It seems to me that surely the answer is found in the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples earlier in Mark's Gospel as he was preparing to set out on what would be his final journey to Jerusalem. Because no less than three times, Mark tells us that he told the disciples that this is what would happen. He said that he would suffer. He said that he would be rejected by the Jewish leaders and the authorities. He said that in due course he would be put to death. In fact, he summed up the whole reason he came to this earth as this. He said he came to give his life. The explanation that we have, I think, from Mark's Gospel for the silence of Jesus Christ here, as he stood before Pilate, is that willing submission to the will of his heavenly Father. Jesus explained in John's account of the life of Jesus, uh, he lays down his life willingly of his own accord. He alone had the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. Nobody could take it from him unless he willed it. It was authority given by his Father. And so even though Jesus is in chains before Pilate, it is Jesus who is actually in total control of this situation. He could at any point have put an end to this whole proceeding. He did so on another occasion. We're told in John chapter 8, a murderous mob gathered around him and it looked like it was the end. And he simply walked straight through them and away to safety. He could have walked free of the courts at any moment. But astonishingly, he chose to submit himself to the will of his heavenly father. He chose to submit himself to the indignity of a frankly, a a joke of a trial and the shame of the cross. He chose to give his life as a ransom for many. 
I think it's no coincidence that in our culture and in our society, we've come to associate the cross with both courage and love. So think about it. We uh, celebrate, don't we, the Victoria Cross. We give out the Victoria Cross as a sign of courage to those who've shown great courage uh, fighting on behalf of our nation. Uh, If uh, you're a medic, you'll be familiar with the idea of the Red Cross and that symbol of love and sacrifice. And yet it seems to me that no matter how brave a soldier, no matter how loving a doctor, uh, that pales in comparison with the courage and the love of Jesus shown as he went to the cross. That love that, showed, that, that saw him freely choose the cross and to give his life. Friends, it wasn't the chains of the soldiers that held Jesus there. It was not the chains, it was not the charges, but it was uh, Jesus, the chains of his love uh, for you and for me. He willingly endured the cross on our behalf. But if that's the case, then that begs the question, why? Why? What did the cross achieve? I mean, there are so many deaths, it seems, and some deaths, really, it's very hard to see where there was a reason for it. Was Jesus' death just simply an example of love and sacrifice? No, I don't think it was. And the reason is found in the second truth that we find in this passage. And that second truth is that Jesus was guiltless, and yet he died for the guilty. He was guiltless, and yet he died for the guilty. Uh, If you're old enough, you might remember the famous uh, legal case several years ago of the Birmingham Six. Uh, They were six men who were wrongly imprisoned, as it turned out, uh, for involvement in IRA bomb attacks in pubs in Birmingham back in the the early 70s. Uh, It has been described as one of the worst miscarriages of justice in British history. It is not a proud uh, moment in uh, British legal history. They were innocent men who were condemned for the crimes of others. It's a terrible situation when that happens. And sadly, we can think of many examples, unfortunately, because human courts are, 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 are uh, unfortunately not, uh, not infallible. And yet again, terrible though it is, it seems to me that it, it, it pales again in comparison with the experience of Jesus Christ, as the Bible describes it. Uh, We're told by Mark in uh, verse 6 of chapter 15 that it was the custom during the Passover festival to release a prisoner at the request of the crowds. Uh, We don't quite know how this uh, custom came about, but there it is. Uh, And it seems, as we can see from Mark's Gospel, that at the same time as Jesus was being held and being tried, there was an individual called Barabbas, who was also in prison uh, for his part in murdering people during rioting. Actually, quite appropriate we talk about the Birmingham Six and the IRA, because at this time, Palestine was much like Ireland was in the Troubles. Uh, It was fraught with political violence and strife. There were numerous organisations, revolutionary organisations, who were seeking by any means possible to take back their country from the Romans. Uh, They were vying for whoever could be, frankly, more violent and, uh, uh, and more shocking. And it seems uh, that Barabbas was part uh, of one of these organisations. It seems as well that Pilate saw this, but he saw that here was an opportunity both to deal with Jesus, but also to deal uh, with the troubles that he was facing. 
Uh, it's clear from how Mark describes it uh, that Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent. Uh, he knew that really he had done uh, nothing wrong. It was tr- they were trumped up uh, charges. Verse 14, he even asked, why, what crime has this man committed? And they couldn't answer him. Uh, he knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus had been, at least at one time, very popular with the crowds. And it seems to me that by offering to release Jesus as part of this Passover uh, custom, he thought that he could win their favour, and he could at the same time prevent an innocent man going to his death. At the same time, it would calm down the riots, and probably win him brownie points with his superiors back in Rome. I must have thought he had a pretty clever plan here. And yet, Pilate's plan went wrong, it seems. When he offered Jesus to the crowds, the crowd, were told, egged on by the chief priests, demanded that instead he release Barabbas. It wasn't what Pilate had thought. And yet he didn't want to cause trouble, uh, and he betrayed his convictions. He wavered, he was indecisive, and yet finally he plumped to go with the crowds, and rather with what his conscience told him. He went along with their demands. He released the guilty Barabbas and he instead condemned the guiltless, innocent Jesus. We can only begin, I think, to wonder at what must have gone through Barabbas' mind as he understood the enormity of what had happened. As far as we can tell, uh, there was no doubt about his guilt. He was involved. He had blood on his hands. He deserved uh, the full sentence of the law. And just imagine what he thought, what he realised when he was going free and someone else was going to the cross. And yet in another sense, we don't have to wonder at how Barabbas felt. Because the Bible explains to us that, that what happened to Barabbas on that first Good Friday is a picture of what Jesus' death accomplished for all of us who will trust in him and what he did on that cross. Because on the cross, the guiltless Jesus died for the guilty ones, for you and for me. We can understand it, I think, more fully by turning to an Old Testament passage that both Jesus and his followers understood as anticipating the cross. And it's one that actually we've seen Mark refer to already in our studies in Mark's Gospel. It is the famous chapter 53 of the prophet uh, Isaiah. You may wish to turn to it. It's on page 742 uh, in your Bibles. It's in the middle of the the prophet Isaiah's writings. Uh, And it's in a section where the the prophet Isaiah is talking about this figure called the servant of the Lord. There's much we don't know about him, but there is much that's clear. He's a mysterious figure who will in some way represent God's people to God, and he will suffer on their behalf. And really the climax of uh, Isaiah 53 is found in verse 6, and this is where Isaiah really gets to the heart of the meaning and the significance of the death of Jesus Christ. And let's read, well let's read from verse 5 actually. This is how Isaiah describes him. He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. 
Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 6, I think, gets right to the heart of it, doesn't it? This is the heart of the human condition. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Whether we like it or not. We may not be murderers like Barabbas, but still we have not uh, treated Jesus as our Lord and King. We have gone away from his ways. We have decided to go our own ways and to wander off. Uh, We deserve his uh, just punishment. And yet the Bible explains that as Jesus went to the cross, the Lord laid on him the iniquity, the, the sin, the rebellion of us all. We are the guilty ones. And yet Jesus, the guiltless one, died on our behalf. He took his, our rebellion on himself. He died, as Mark told us elsewhere, as a ransom for many. The innocents in the place of the guilty. On the cross, the Lord Jesus died for us that we could be set free. Over the years, there are many stories that have been told to try and uh, get a handle on what the cross might mean and to help us to understand it. And one that I'm sure you'll know, but I always find particularly powerful, is one that dates uh, from the Second World War. Uh, You may have seen the old film, The Bridge on the River Kwai. There's a a famous story told about an incident that happened during the prisoner of war camps uh, uh, as the the soldiers were building uh, the, uh, the railway along the River Kwai. It's told that apparently they went out one day Uh, to do some work. Uh, When they came back, the Japanese captors discovered uh, that there was a missing shovel uh, that the uh, men had not brought back. They lined the uh, prisoners up and said that they would start shooting them one by one unless the shovel was returned. And apparently one soldier stepped forward and said it was me. Kill me and let them go. Uh, They duly did. They dragged him off. They killed him. They did a recount and discovered that all the shovels were there. Uh, That soldier was innocent. He had to have been. And yet he died so that others might live. And in that small way, I think it helps us to understand what happens at the cross and its significance for us today. Because the meaning of the cross and its significance lies in what it achieved for us. Because on the cross, Jesus died the death that you and I deserved to secure for us the life and the freedom that we don't deserve. Just as the payment of a ransom to a hijacker secures the freedom uh, for a hostage, just as that uh, soldier's death on behalf of his comrades secured uh, their freedom, so the death of Jesus on the cross paid the price to secure our freedom from the captivity of our sin and our rebellion. Uh, many years ago, there was a debate in the Times about what is wrong with the world, and it happened on the letters page. And it said that there was uh, one letter in particular that stood out. It was written by the writer G.K. Chesterton. A very short letter. He said this. Uh, Dear sir, what is wrong with the world? I am yours, Chesterton. It, it's funny, but, but actually it gets to the heart of the human condition, doesn't it? The greatest problem that we face is ourselves. Our rebellion against God, which pits us against each other, it pits us against nature, but more significantly, it pits us against God. And the wonderful news of the Bible, seen here in in, in miniature in the story of Barabbas, is that Jesus has dealt with that problem because he bore the punishment that we deserved, 
so that we, the guilty, can go free. Well, if that takes us to the heart of the meaning of the cross, uh, what about our response? Where does it leave us? And here I think we see this in our third truth from this passage. That we see here that Jesus is reigning and yet is rejected. He is reigning and yet is rejected. Uh, So Mark tells us that Jesus had been sentenced to death and then he endured the ritual that all condemned men had to endure. That was a fairly set pattern uh, for those who were going to the cross and Jesus uh, endured it. Uh, So first uh, we're told um, that he was uh, flogged, verse 15. Uh, It's just one word, but uh, it denotes an act of unspeakable brutality. Uh, He would have been bent over, there would have been a whip, uh, which was made from uh, from cords interlaced with pieces of bone and metal that would have been uh, thrashed on his back, uh, ripping the skin from his muscle. Uh, It was so brutal that many men never even made it to the cross because they died at this point. Uh, He underwent the ritual of crucifixion. And yet that in itself wasn't even enough. Having flogged him, the soldiers decide that they're going to have some fun with him. Clearly they know the claims of Jesus to be a king. So they find a purple cloak, or maybe it was even a rug or some curtains or something. It's the colour of a king, it's purple, the colour of royalty. Uh, They put it round him, they find they make together a a crown, in inverted commas, of thorny shrubs and weeds, and stick it on his head. I mean, the mockery could not be any clearer, could it? I mean, who is this pathetic figure that we see before us? He's bloodied, he's beaten, he's wearing this kind of, it's it's a parody of power. No one could look less like a king than Jesus did at that moment to those soldiers. And yet at the same time, in fact, nothing could be more true either. They did not know it. But the man that they are mocking is nothing less than the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is the Messiah himself, God's anointed one. Mark has told us that this is who he is right from the very start of his gospel. You may remember all those months ago when we started the first verse of Mark's gospel. Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. God's promised anointed King. And as we've been through Mark's gospel, again and again, Mark has shown us the evidence that Jesus is exactly who he claims to be. He's a king who rules over sickness. He's a king who rules over sin. He has power to forgive sins. He's even a king who is able to rule over the storm of nature itself and who serves his people by coming and dying for them. And yet, just as Mark has repeatedly shown us the evidence... So also, if you've been with us, you'll know that he has been repeatedly confronting us with a challenge or a question. If Jesus really is the king that Mark presents him as, then every single one of us has to decide how we ourselves will respond to him. As we'll go through the rest of Mark's gospel, we'll see a number of different possible responses to Jesus from different people who were around at the death of Jesus. But for the moment, Mark here invites us just to consider one reaction. And it was the reaction of these soldiers. Uh, And sadly, their reaction is an all-too-common one. It's simply one of mockery or of rejection. We don't really know anything about them. They were probably a bit tired and busy. It was festival time. They were probably a bit on edge, thinking that this could be where things break out. 
and they just saw this as a bit of fun. But even so, still, they, they, they made up their minds about Jesus Christ. In his eyes, he was just a nobody, a failed pretender, a poser, a revolutionary who hadn't got his own way, an object of nothing more than ridicule. We shouldn't be surprised, because actually, in many ways, Jesus has always invited that kind of response. The very first picture that we have, actually, the very earliest picture, I should say, of the cross of Jesus, is some graffiti found in Pompeii. And it's simply a, a crude drawing of a man on a cross with a donkey's head. It's a simple drawing, but it, but it tells you everything, doesn't it, about what that individual, that artist, thought about the cross of Jesus. And we see that in lots of ways here, don't we? They just don't have anything to, to say apart from ridicule. And yet the Bible says that just as those soldiers fell on their knees in mockery and in mocking worship, so actually one day when Jesus returns in his glory, all of us will fall on our knees as he returns in his majesty. For some of us, it will be by choice. As we worship him, we give him the glory that he deserves because we are his friends and his disciples. But for others of us, it will be by force. We will have no choice. It will not be what we want to do, but we will have to because he will come and we will see him as he is in his glory. And friends, I want to ask you as we finish this morning, uh, what is your response to this man, Jesus Christ, as he goes to the cross? Is it one of rejection, as sadly it was uh, for those soldiers? Is it one of indecision, as it was for Pilate? Or is it one of worship? Jesus is our loving king, He freely gave up his life on the cross so that we could uh, be reconciled with God, our Heavenly Father. Uh, Will you call him your king this morning? Will you let him be Lord of your life? Will you let him rule in your heart? Will he be your king? Why is the cross of Jesus Christ still celebrated? Even 2,000 years on, why do we remember that bloody, sordid, sweaty death? Mark shows us why. Because Jesus, our loving King, willingly endured the death that we deserved to bring us back to God. Let's pray that we would respond appropriately this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we will never know what it fully cost you to go to the cross on our behalf. We get a glimpse from these verses, and yet still we will never fully know. But we praise you that you freely chose the cross Uh, On our behalf, you died the death that we deserved. You did not deserve to be there, and yet you chose it. And we praise you that because of your death, that secures our forgiveness and our freedom. We can never praise you enough, and yet we pray that we would recognize you as our loving king, our saviour king who died for us. And we pray that all that we do would be lived out in uh, in response uh, to your love for us. Uh, Help us, we pray, even in the quietness of our hearts, to see who you are and to decide to follow you. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.